Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. Life can be overwhelming and it's easy for people to become burned out, often without them even knowing it. Perhaps even you, you know, that motivational lack that you may feel has crept up. Perhaps the constant tiredness you're feeling or your irritability with everyone it seems. They're just some of the signs of it. Now we associate burnout with work or working too hard, but that really isn't the only cause of it. Any of our roles in life can weigh heavily on us, and the relationships we each have in our lives take work, especially the most important one you can have, your relationship with yourself. I've found personally that talking to a professional in the past has helped me in my own times of need. It's helped me figure out exactly what was causing me stress. And should you feel this is something you may benefit from, then perhaps BetterHelp can help you. BetterHelp is customised online therapy that offers video, phone and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy and you could be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com TCE. That's B-E-T-T-E-R H-E-L-P dot com slash T-C-E. Hello all, and the very warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, the premier North Wales spare room-based one-person-and-his-one-eyed hairy football true crime podcast that seeks each time around those cases long forgotten, unfamiliar, or mind-boggling from all corners of the UK and Ireland. Bringing you these tales is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. The mog who sleeps like a log, Pixie, is right here beside me as always. I know some of you listen out for his little bell each time, and I've endeavoured here to make sure that it is left in. Or I may even have edited it in, who knows. And you folks are the most important part, the reason there is an enthusiast after all. It's wonderful to have you joining us today, which I thank you so much for doing so. It means the absolute world. And I do hope that as you have, that you and yours are all good, you're all safe, and you're all well. So this episode is a tad later coming because it comes up right off the back of CrimeCon 2022, which, bar the fire that happened there that knocked out the power and hot water to the rooms, the lifts, and the bar tills, It was a great weekend. It was so great to see and speak to so many people there, seeing old friends again and making new ones. Thank you all so much. It was a blast. Taking time out like that does have a knock-on effect though and makes some stuff come a bit later than it would normally do. The second part of our tale, for example, as well as this month's Patreon episode, which will be out later than I normally like them to be, but it shall be out very soon. On the subject of Patreon, my utmost thanks go out to both the returning and new supporters of the show, with shout-outs going out this time around to Mark O'Keefe, Tom, Judy Gabrovech, Teresa Gort, Alison Lewis, Brett, Debbie Brown, Marge HB, and Richard Hadfield and Tabitha Spence, who have edited their pledges, plus Laura Cable and Karen Berish, who have opted to annually support the show. Apologies if I've mispronounced anybody's name there. Thank you so much all, it's so kind of you folks to do so, it means the world to me, it really does. 
If you want to join this kind lot in supporting the show and get yourself some extra enthusiast tales, including The Cannibal and the Cowboy, Horrors Over the Holidays, Predators in the Park, or one of my all-time favourite tales, The Exploding Dad, then to do so is a doddle. It's the True Crime Enthusiast podcast over on Patreon, or you can use the link that's in the episode show notes each and every time. Quicker than it takes a Love Island contestant to snap off an Instagram photo, and for less than the brain cells, charisma points, and likability factors that they have between them combined, you can be hearing these and a full other series worth of tales. Who knows, you may even be awaiting some stuff from me, and I do have some new gizits coming soon as well. I'll say now also that if you are a show supporter, or you decide to be, then please make sure that any address or contact details for you is placed in full there on Patreon, if you get the option to. I have had stuff returned to me because the addresses apparently aren't complete. They looked fine to me like, but apparently not. And I'd hate you to miss out on me sending you something. So, a bit later than planned, this episode brings the second part of Journey of Mayhem. If you've not listened to part one, then you're best off holding your horse's ear and doing so. It makes for a better listen after all. But if you have done, then just a short recap. In part one, I brought you the terrifying events of the Friday afternoon of the 19th of October 2012, where a suburb of Cardiff was terrorised by an individual on a rampage with an unusual yet equally lethal weapon, a three-ton Iveco van. Over a 30-minute period across an eight-mile area, the individual deliberately drove this at some 17 people, causing serious injury to several, including several children, and fatal injuries to one, 32-year-old mother of three, Karina Menzies. He was finally fishtailed off the road by members of South Wales Road's policing unit and was arrested. So, let's see who he was and why he did this. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use discretion whilst you're listening in all. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast for the second and final part of an episode that I've entitled Journey of Mayhem. The individual responsible for the carnage that I've skimmed over here in the recap, but that was described more in depth in the first part of Journey of Mayhem, was 31-year-old Cardiff resident Matthew Turden, who although had come to police attention before, had no previous convictions, and tested negative for being under the influence of drink or drugs immediately following his arrest. After Turden was arrested following his eight-mile, half-hour-long journey of mayhem, he at first claimed that his head was hazy and said he couldn't remember details, but he knew that he had done a bad thing. No shit, eh? He told police what he'd done was horrendous. Again, bit of an understatement there or what. And much later, had admitted that he heard voices inside and outside his head that day adding that he'd not been feeling right about himself or his mind, and this was not a feeling he'd had before in his previous mental health episodes. Now we'll come on to Turden's previous mental health somewhat later. 
After his girlfriend Lisa Davis had broken up with him, this added to the stress he claimed he was suffering in his employment at Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs in Cardiff. Turden told police that he'd been sleeping rough for two to three days in the run-up to his rampage while he waited to move into a new flat, spending the night sleeping in his van, claiming he liked it because it was higher up off the floor, and said he got into the van that day merely intending to drive to a local industrial estate and to go to sleep in it. But instead, as we've heard, he began to drive erratically around the Ely area and targeted innocent pedestrians. Turden initially informed the officers questioning him that he knew the faces of the victims he targeted as he recognised them as people he had seen locally who had been gaslighting him. That was the reason he targeted them. Doctors later said that Turden was actually having auditory hallucinations and had imagined all of these comments and slights and it was later revealed that Turden had told the officers this claim because he didn't want them to know that these hallucinations and auditory voices had caused him to carry out the offences, as that would indicate that he was mentally ill. Said Turden at the time, It just felt really a sick thing to do. I was really horrendous, and I was just in a blind panic. I felt like what I wanted to do was kill these people, but in actually doing it, it felt really wrong. I believed these people had been gaslighting me, and I wanted revenge. I couldn't believe what I'd done. I just went for them, went for all of them. During his interview, he said he'd experienced an especial fit of fury during the incident at the fire station, the collision where Karina Menzies had been fatally injured, telling officers that Karina was one of the worst offenders who'd been calling him filthy names, and he wanted revenge on her. After being shown a map of his spree, Turden began to further recollect what he'd done, and as the interview progressed, describing his feeling of panic that he was being followed, he told police that he'd been trying to go somewhere safe where he could relax and work out what I'd done, he quoted, but had to go and fill up with diesel first, so, speeding through red lights and into oncoming traffic, all captured on chilling CCTV, he drove to the Asda petrol station on Cardiff's Leckwith trading estate. But when he got to the petrol station, Turden said that people were shouting at him and being insulting and threatening towards him because he was having trouble filling up his van. Turden told police he recognised their faces and had attacked the three fellow motorists with a crook lock to defend himself, he claimed, believing that he'd seen them previously in Tesco and that all three had been conspiring against him. He also claimed he'd wanted to knock Jill and Becky White over because he believed both were amongst the people conspiring against him or goading him. In reference to Jill, he said, She was one of them, just saying things like, I was gay and stuff like that. Describing then the horrific events at the petrol station, Turden said that when he tried to drive away, the traffic was slow, so he put his foot down, saying, I think then I knocked someone over. He said he reversed, and then tried to drive forward faster, but thought there was a problem with his steering. In fact, this was Jill White, who was trapped under his front wheels. Recalling this, Turden said, The back of the van lifted up over her, and I think she was dragged under it for a while, because the van was out of control, and I was trying to control it, 
and then the steering came back. The steering came back, as he put it, only because his severely injured victims had been dislodged from under the van's wheels. Horror beyond belief, isn't it? Following his arrest, Turden was taken to the segregation wing of HMP Cardiff before on Monday the 22nd of October, Matthew Turden appeared before Cardiff magistrates for the case to be referred to Crown Court. Initially led into court with his hands cuffed behind his back, an unshaven Turden, wearing a navy blue sweater and with closely cropped dark hair, looked relaxed as he was released from his handcuffs and brought into the courtroom before District Judge Bodfan Jenkins. Speaking with a soft Cardiff accent, he confirmed his date of birth as November the 13th, 1980, but when asked to confirm his address, he gave it as no fixed address, saying, Unfortunately, at the moment, I was between moving out. There were no members of the public in the courtroom as Turden was brought in for his hearing, nor were any present when he appeared at Newport Crown Court via video link from Cardiff Prison the following morning, speaking only twice during the 15-minute hearing as he was told he faced a summary 19 charges, including murder, 13 counts of attempted murder, 4 counts of assault occasioning actual bodily harm, and 1 charge of dangerous driving. He was remanded in custody to appear again at Cardiff Crown Court for a plea hearing on the 28th of January, before being subsequently transferred from Cardiff Prison to HMP Long Lartin in Worcestershire where he remained on remand for the next three months. Meanwhile, in the immediate aftermath of Turden's rampage, it wasn't just the community of Ely that was struggling to make sense of the horror that had befallen them, but the wider city of Cardiff also. A statement issued by Cardiff City Football Club on its website said, Our prayers are with the families of all involved, along with our best wishes to those receiving support, from the excellent University Hospital of Wales medical teams. The Saturday afterwards, Cardiff City players each wore black armbands during the championship game away against Nottingham Forest as a mark of respect. Aside from the scores of floral and personal tributes left at the scenes, predominantly at the fire station, where some 200 people had visited to hold a minute's silence for Karina Menzies, on the Sunday evening after the rampage, hundreds of people gathered to share their grief in a poignant prayer service at the Church of the Resurrection in Ely. The Reverend Jan Gold, who had herself earlier broken down in tears during her morning service at the church in front of a packed congregation, said, Whether we've personally known one or more of the victims of Friday's terrible events, or whether we are here as a member of this community, simply wanting to show solidarity, there can be no one who has not been profoundly affected by what has happened here this week. This must surely be perhaps the deepest grief we have shared as a community. Now it must do, mustn't it? You can't even begin to imagine the lasting impact that such terrible events that affect so many must have on such places. Think of the likes of Hungerford, Dunblane or even Monk Seaton after Robert Sartin's rampage as we heard earlier on the series. There must always be that memory, that sense of, why has this happened in our corner of the world? But as well as grief, 
There must also be a sense of anger and high emotion, completely understandably. And this was certainly demonstrated in Ely, beginning on the day of the rampage. It was only shortly after it, after Turden had been arrested, that reports naming the individual responsible for driving the white van which tore through Ely began to surface, mainly through social media on Twitter and Facebook, but which wrongly named him as 32-year-old Jason Klaus, a van driver that lived on the area's Landau Road, and which immediately, through the feelings of the community, were vented at. Jason described later, I had people send me threats saying they were going to kill my kids. He went on to describe that the first he knew of these false accusations was when he was called on his mobile that afternoon, saying, People phoned me up and said, We heard you've been driving about in a transit van and running people over. I didn't know what it was all about. I was out fishing with my mate Ken at the time. We'd been fishing all day. And people were saying I'd been driving around in a transit van. I said, I'm fishing with Ken. But despite the seriousness of these allegations and threats, Jason, who was immediately vindicated when Turden's name was released, insisted that he bore no grudges against anyone. In a remarkable display of forgiveness, he said the following day, It's just the way of life these days. I knew I was innocent and had nothing to worry about. I was baffled, thinking, why are people naming me? But people have been amazing with their apologies. I just want people to know that they need to concentrate on this poor family and the victims. I know who named me, but I'll keep that to myself. I'm holding no grudge. It's no good holding grudges. It just eats you away. But I want my name in the paper to say, this man was wrongly accused and didn't do anything wrong. Now, whether or not Jason's name did go in the newspapers with an apology can't be ascertained, but the next best thing did happen. A Facebook page was set up purely to apologise to Jason, entitled, An Apology to Jason Klaus from the People of Ely. It quickly had hundreds of likes, supporters and comments, with the person responsible for setting up the page writing, So glad the People of Ely have taken the time to like this page. I'm sure it means a lot to Jason and his family. Once again, the people of the area have shown true spirit and made me feel privileged to say I'm from such a special area. Thank you, everyone. Now let's focus our thoughts on helping everyone that's been affected. Now, fair enough, I understand raw emotion and all that, but it's not nice sending death threats to someone's children, though, is it? Social media is a very, very double-edged sword. On the subject of raw emotion, Karina Menzies' funeral took place at 1pm on Friday, November the 9th at the Church of the Resurrection in Grand Avenue, where hundreds of people paid tribute to the late, fun-loving Mum of Three. So many did so that the church was packed to the rafters, with many more congregated to listen outside via loudspeaker. A horse-drawn carriage bearing Karina's body her coffin adorned in a leopard print design, a tribute to a style that the mum had loved, collected her from a nearby family home and proceeded along to the church, the carriage also bearing a large floral tribute that spelt out simply, Mum. Mourners heard tributes of how Karina had loved horses, music, makeup, and fashion, 
leopard print had even featured on the Order of Service cover. Testaments to her were given by her brothers, Craig and Gareth, her sisters, Samantha and Laura, and her friend, Otis Williams, who each recalled so many good memories with her and described Karina as a strong, fun character who always put her family first. They also vowed to look after her three daughters and ensure they had a good life going forward. Her sister Samantha, who Karina's daughters were now living with, said tearfully, You injected so much happiness in my life, and you live on in your three beautiful girls. I promise I will cherish them. But what got the tears free-flowing from the congregation were the written tributes to Karina that her eldest two daughters, 11-year-old Sophie and 8-year-old Ellie, read aloud to their mother at the service. Sophie, who as we said previously had been away in Florida at the time, had written in part, Dear Mum, today I'm feeling really sad because I know it's time to say goodbye. You were an amazing mum. You were fun, cool and unnormal. She went on to thank Karina for saving my two beautiful sisters, adding that she would always be a hero. Ellie, meanwhile, had wrote, Mum, thank you for everything you've done for me and have a nice time being an angel. Always visit me and I will always be by your side and you will be by mine. Whenever I feel lonely, I will remember you will be right here by me. Ellie also went on to remember her mum making her laugh by pulling funny faces at her and helping her make spaghetti bolognese. I will never forget that. I love you mum, she added. That would have absolutely broken me to hear. It made me well up when I was researching and writing the episode and it's made me feel the exact same right now. My heart just went out to the poor family so much. The Reverend Jan Gold added with a sad smile, I think Karina would be very proud of her coffin. I'm sure that she would have indeed. Miss Gold told mourners that they couldn't even begin to imagine the anguish Karina's family were continuing to go through, but hoped her three daughters and her family would be able to draw some strength and comfort from prayers, saying, Tragic death which is almost always sudden and unexpected as it was with Karina, is a lot like a blackout. One minute the sun is shining, the next minute it's a dark night. Without the slightest warning or the slightest chance to prepare ourselves, we are plunged into an impenetrable darkness, and within the space of a minute, our whole world is turned upside down. A cross, a Bible, and holy water were then placed on Karina's coffin, and the hymn All Things Bright and Beautiful was sung. As the funeral service then ended, and mourners mingled outside the church, they hugged and offered words of comfort to each other before attending Karina's burial, which then took place at Western Cemetery on Cowbridge Road West. Aside from the book of condolence for Karina that was immediately opened at the Roy J. Larkham Funeral Home, a collection also took place at the service to raise money for two trust funds that had since been set up, one to help Karina's children and another to raise funds for the other victims. At Cardiff City's match against Watford on the following Tuesday, some £4,155 was raised in a collection from supporters 
an amount that Cardiff-born striker Craig Bellamy matched from his own pocket and which the club itself donated £1,690 to, making the total £10,000. Cardiff City spokesperson Barry McAuliffe said, Cardiff City staff this week confirmed that the matchday collection total of £4,155 from supporters attending the Watford game on Tuesday night will be given to the appeal, which is a credit to those who gave so kindly. The club are further honoured to add to the total raised thanks to two very generous individuals indeed. Craig Bellamy, as pledged, is matching the funds raised on Tuesday night as a personal commitment to his local links whilst Cardiff City principal investor Tan Sri Vincent Tan has also confirmed his wish to see the total funds raised that night reach £10,000 on behalf of the club, recognising our place and responsibilities within the wider community. Mr McAuliffe added, On Saturday afternoon, Karina's sister Samantha Menzies and guests, some who are members of the fundraising committee, will be joining us at Cardiff City Stadium. We assure all supporters who have yet to donate to the funds raised will do so in the coming days and weeks via the official charity once it's registered. Even actors Hugh Grant, Francis Barber and Sir Ian McKellen helped raise £5,000 for Karina's children. Gandalf, Magneto, Mr Holmes, call him what you will, offered an auction prize of lunch for six people, including himself and Francis Barber, at his London pub, The Grapes, in Limehouse. Now, Hugh Grant was the winning bidder for this, with £5,000, the amount donated going to Karina's children. A month after Karina's death, the fire crews which had helped her, though sadly in vain, organised a four-hour car wash to raise money for both of these funds, an event which was a huge success with eight cars queuing up at any one time. This combined with a sponsored walk through Cardiff which had been held on October the 26th, attended by about 100 people eager to show their support, raised more than £5,200 for the funds. The parents of the children involved expressing their sincere appreciation. Their children too equally were given a reason to smile, as they received bundles of toys, including board games, action figures and dolls, following a donation of £450 worth of presents by Smith's Toy Store. So, as I said in the first episode, all this is an example of the community coming together and remembering one of their own, doing what they can for them. But Karina's memory had spread even further than the community where she'd lived, and the country even, even purely by chance. One week after her death, Several friends and loved ones of Karina had gathered at the memorial outside Ely Fire Station and had released several helium balloons, each bearing poignant and touching messages to the tragic mum in remembrance to her. It's quite a common thing to do when someone tragically passes away, isn't it? Some three days later, by the Monday, one of these balloons was spotted by 68-year-old Rainier Gumprich while he was out picking mushrooms in a field in the village of Westerkappeln, just outside the city of Osnabrück in western Germany. A handwritten message attached to it was written on notepaper from Michelston Community College on Michelston Road in Ely, and which read, In support of Karina Menzies, you'll be missed, you were such an amazing person. R.I.P. 
Lainey, Nicky and Megan and Keris. Rainer cut off the note and the balloon flew away. He couldn't speak English and so could not understand the message, but was shocked to discover an English note in a German field, which is indeed pretty random, isn't it? And so he took it into the offices of his local newspaper, Westfalischen Nachrichten. There, the journalist searched for Karina's name on the internet and was shocked to read about the hit and runs, with journalist Bjorn Meyer saying how staff at the paper were amazed when they realised just how far the balloon had travelled in such a short time, adding, Normally, when you find a balloon, it's from a child with an address, but this was written in English. I was like, wow, it's crazy. We looked up how far the balloon travelled to us. It's a very, very long journey. The first thing I did was Google the name Karina Menzies and I read online what happened. It was very cruel. How mad is that, eh? It had reached Western Germany. Meanwhile, as the Ely community were rallying around Karina's family and children and those affected by the horrific attacks, the individual responsible for them, Matthew Turden, remained on remand in HMP Long Larting as investigators began to piece together his background. The eldest of three sons born in Cardiff to his mother Mary, a nurse, and his Slovakian-born father Milan, former neighbours of Turden described a quiet but lovable individual who was more often than not to be seen fixing engines with his dad Milan outside his parents' home, a four-bedroom semi-detached house at the end of a quiet leafy cul-de-sac in the Cardiff suburb of Roth having inherited his father's love of cars and regularly changing his. One former neighbour told the Daily Mirror newspaper, I remember Matthew pushing his brother in his pram and playing football in the street outside. He was obsessed with cars and had different cars all the time. He had an enormous American car at one time which took up three parking spaces and he also had a big 4x4 at one stage, but he was always in different cars. They're a lovely family. I've lived here for 25 years and there have never been any problems. Their mum Mary is a nurse and dad Milan is very polite and lovely. He was in business but has retired. Mary is very caring and thoughtful and I know I could get help from them at any time. It's hard to believe any of this. Turden also reportedly enjoyed a cordial, if not particularly close, relationship with his younger brothers, 29-year-old David and Joseph, who was then in his early 20s. He also worked. He was employed by Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs in Teaglass in Tlanishen at the time of his rampage, and two years prior to it, had moved out of the family home and in with his then-girlfriend in Ely, 46-year-old Lisa Davis. But in the days running up to his 30-minute journey of mayhem, former colleagues of Turden at the customs office began noticing that his behaviour had become somewhat erratic. One employee went further and described him as behaving strangely and bizarrely in the days before the offences, repeatedly claiming he was convinced that his milkshakes were starting to taste differently, as if someone had spiked them with a hallucinogenic drug, he claimed. Irrational and paranoid thoughts such as this were nothing really new to Matthew Turden though, as we shall come to hear a bit later on. His behaviour and demeanour became such that just two days before his rampage, 
his worried line manager at the Revenue and Customs offices met with him after his colleagues had reported their concerns, leaving his bosses contemplating referring him for medical attention. That was two days before October the 19th, and by that Friday, Turden had become fully convinced that people, including children, were conspiring against him, were out to get him, and were gaslighting him. We've heard of the events of October the 19th and Turden's horrific half hour that afternoon already, in the immediate aftermath of which he was now facing charges of a count of murder, 13 counts of attempted murder, 4 counts of assault occasioning actual bodily harm, and 1 count of dangerous driving. Further alternate charges were also later to be added to the indictment. During his time on remand at the prison, Tverden's behaviour remained disturbed. He refused to have any contact whatsoever with his family. He refused to take any medication and he would only eat bread and water, which resulted in him losing approximately four stones in weight within the three months he spent there. His rationale for this behaviour was that he felt that this was what normal prisoners ate and he wanted to be treated like a normal prisoner, not someone with a mental illness. As a result of this behaviour, his refusal of all medication, his decision to restrict his consumption of food and fluid, and the risk he posed of absconding, as well as the nature of the offences he was there for, it was soon agreed that Turden could not be safely managed in the conditions of a prison environment, and therefore, a referral was made for an assessment by a consultant forensic psychiatrist from Ashworth Hospital in Liverpool. This was subsequently undertaken on the 3rd of January 2013, and following this, three weeks later, on the 24th of January, the decision was made for Turden to be transferred to Ashworth Hospital. Now, why it had taken three months for this to happen boggles the mind, really. For although I said earlier that Matthew Turden had no previous convictions, but had come to police attention before, he'd come to the attention of health authorities numerous times over the previous decade. A Healthcare Inspectorate of Wales report that was later commissioned into his previous psychiatric care found a young man who had a substantial history of mental illness, an individual with a series of worrying episodes in his past, that the report revealed had been sectioned four times between 2003 and 2007. It's worth documenting Tverden's history of mental health in some detail here, because the report also highlighted an individual who had slipped through the cracks in the system seriously due to failings in his care. You can read this report in full for yourselves, there's a link to it in the episode show notes, and it does make for interesting reading, but I can condense it here as follows, so you don't have to really. I'm quite good like that. Turden showed no sign of illness throughout his childhood and early teens, though there was some family history of mental illness, and he performed well at school, achieving good enough grades in his GCSEs and A-levels to be able to earn a place at the University of Glamorgan in Pontypridd, where he went on to study design and technology. Turden completed his first year at university, but within two weeks of starting his second year of studies, he dropped out due to becoming unwell. This may have been due to early signs of his subsequent mental disorder, but he didn't seek help for this at this stage. Having left university then, Turden worked in a variety of jobs over the next couple of years, including working in an electrical appliance store, 
a call centre and a storage warehouse. But by the end of 2001, Turden had begun to show signs of severe paranoia and low mood, which became so extreme that on the 1st of February 2002, along with his mother, he had attended the Four Elms Medical Centre, which I shall refer to going forward as the FEMC, in the Roth area of Cardiff, and had spoken to a GP there, where he openly expressed concerns he had around his well-being, specifically paranoia about his body image and that people were talking about him. Medication was discussed at this stage, but was not prescribed. By two months later, on the 10th of April 2002, his mother attended FEMC again to say that Turden's condition had worsened and that he wouldn't leave the house, and although a home visit for the following day was arranged, Turden would not see the GP, and this was not followed up. He didn't attend the doctor for almost a year after this, when on the 4th of April 2003, he again attended FEMC and saw the same GP he had previously, once again relaying concerns that he was worried that people were talking about him and that he was suffering from a poor sleep pattern. A mental state examination of him was undertaken six days later, on the 10th of April, where he was noted to be displaying poor eye contact, to have both objectively and subjectively low mood and liable speech. His mother saw the same GP on the 21st of May to raise further concerns that his son's condition was deteriorating, stating that he'd been unable to remain in work, and so an appointment was scheduled for Turden to see a consultant psychiatrist at the Lynx Community Mental Health Team in Cardiff on the 6th of June. He didn't attend this, and so a community psychiatric nurse went to visit Turden at his parents' home to assess him. Here, it was noted that Turden stated he felt better than he had been, but that he said that he still felt stressed and paranoid that people were making derogatory comments against him, meaning he was not going out of the house. He was visited again at home six days later, where it was recorded that he was still refusing to take any medication and that he remained symptomatic for paranoid schizophrenia. When he once again missed an appointment six days later at the links, a CPN visited him again at home and recorded in the case notes that Turden appeared better. However, just over a month later, on the 21st of July, on yet another of these follow-up appointments to his parents' home, Turden was so disturbed that he jumped out of a first-floor window to escape, claiming that neighbours were talking about him and voices were telling him to get away. As a result of this, Police were contacted and subsequently apprehended Turden at around midnight in a nearby street. He was duly sectioned under Section 136 of the Mental Health Act 1983 and had a nine-day residential stay in Cardiff's Whitchurch Hospital before being discharged. Following this, aside from medication given during his residential stay in Whitchurch, is the first record of Turden being prescribed any medication for his mental health, namely 10mg doses of olanzapine to relieve the symptoms of schizophrenia and the antidepressant sertraline in a 50mg dosage. The following month, Turden began community-based care at the Rawnsley unit in Tlando, but towards the end of August 2003, it was recorded that he'd begun to disengage with this, missing several appointments. By November of that year, he was still attending periodically, 
though it was noted he continued to be difficult to engage with and refused to participate in the majority of activities available. During discussions with staff here, Turden admitted that he continually felt low and was still anxious about leaving his home, whilst also claiming that he was concerned about an article he'd read which talked about coded messages in the Bible, which he said gave him strong feelings of deja vu. By the 26th of January 2004, Turden had been attending the unit on a more regular basis, but whilst entering the unit for this particular appointment, the concourse area to the clinic had been busy and there were a group of people laughing, which Turden immediately took offence to. As he walked past the group, he span around, made a pistol gesture with his hand and pointed it at them. During the subsequent discussion with staff about this behaviour, Turden initially refused to talk about the incident, but later stated that he had done so because it was the usual thing that happened, people talking about me. Though he was still prescribed medication and continued periodically to attend his outpatient's appointments at the Rawnsley unit over the next three years, by the 13th of April 2007, Turden's parents had grown so increasingly concerned that his condition had deteriorated, which they felt was due to him reducing his medication without medical advice to do so, that it resulted in a second admission for him to Whitchurch Hospital. Here, he initially refused all medication and became quite hostile towards staff, as well as being angry at his parents for taking him there and stating that he didn't want to see them again in the future. When initially admitted to East 3A Psychiatric Intensive Care Unit, he'd refused to sign his patient's rights form, tearing it up and subsequently put small pieces of paper from the torn-up form inside his ear resulting in him being taken to the University Hospital of Wales to remove these foreign objects. Almost two weeks after admission, on the 26th of April, Turden was reviewed by a consultant psychiatrist who noted he was less agitated but remained unwell and had no insight into his illness. During their conversation, Turden had relayed concerns around the mental health of his parents as he reported they were doing bizarre things, given an example of his mother moving magazines around his room and only vacuuming certain areas of the carpet. He also believed that his father was, according to the notes, very distressed but he was alternately smiling in a trance. The consultant psychiatrist further recorded, when Turden started talking about his parents, it seemed clear that this was the centre of some of his delusional thinking. Nevertheless, that same day, he was discharged back to his parents' care. The following day, Turden telephoned the CMHT from outside his home in a paranoid and psychotic state, stating to a member of the nursing team that he couldn't return to the house as his father was walking around threatening him with a knife. Concurrently, Turden's father was contacted by another member of the CMHT, where he denied these claims claiming that at that moment Turden was still sat in his car on the drive refusing to return inside the house and stating that the family was struggling to cope with his current condition, describing him as psychotic and relaying concerns about episodes of his son's recent behaviour, such as keeping flammable materials in his bedroom, sitting in his car with a door open obstructing the road and then refusing to move it when asked and even throwing away his brother's glucose monitor for his diabetes. 
Oh, and of course the fact that he'd just the previous day been discharged from a 13-day sectioning. Consequently then, at 1.30 on the morning of 28th of April 2007, police officers who were contacted attended the house and asked Turden to speak with them outside the car, which he agreed to do, and upon which they immediately restrained him and removed him under section 136 of the Mental Health Act. He was then taken to Whitchurch Hospital for the second time in as many weeks, where he was to spend the next 10 days and where he once again displayed this disturbed behaviour, such as a poor and severely disrupted sleeping pattern, expressive and voiced uncharacteristic religious thoughts, and undertaking an excessive intake of water, consuming so much at any one time that he would vomit. His parents submitted a letter to his ward on the 7th of May, addressed to the Mental Health Act Tribunal, and which detailed their concerns that if their son were to be discharged from his section following the tribunal, which was scheduled for the following day, that it would at this stage be too early and would simply result in a repeat of the event which had occurred prior to his admission on the 27th of April. This letter was completely disregarded, however, when the following day, Turden's Mental Health Act Tribunal was held, and it was decided he would be discharged from hospital reasoning. The tribunal was satisfied that the patient had been suffering from a mental illness, but was not satisfied that it remained a nature or degree which made it appropriate for him to be liable to be detained. So he was back to his long-suffering parents. He cancelled each of his follow-up appointments over the next few weeks, his behaviour still erratic and disturbed, and then, on the 1st of July, left the family home stating he would contact them if he needed anything in the future. The following morning, his mother contacted the CMHT to inform them that Turden's mental health had seriously deteriorated further and he'd left the family home the previous day, his present whereabouts she was unaware of. She was subsequently advised to contact police if she was concerned about her son's well-being, which she did so, reporting him as a missing person. Later the same morning, the 2nd of July, staff working at a bank in Usk in Monmouthshire contacted Gwent police with concerns about a man with a briefcase chained to his wrist and belt, who it was reported was acting suspiciously and who had entered two banks and a post office in the area on numerous occasions that morning. At the same time, force officers were investigating Turden's vehicle which had been found unattended and illegally parked in Usk's Porthacarn Street. They found the individual with a briefcase, Turden, near to the town square and stopped him, where he was described by officers as being clearly agitated, aggressive and visibly shaking. Turden initially refused to provide any details and would not allow officers to search him, but eventually acquiesced and allowed officers to accompany them to his car to carry out a search of his vehicle. Whilst the officers were searching the vehicle, Turden placed the briefcase which had been chained to his wrist and belt on the front seat of his car, which was also subsequently searched, and which was found to contain what appeared to be a Colt handgun, though this was later revealed to be an imitation gas air weapon, but which was loaded with pellets. Turden also had a pair of latex gloves in his possession, as well as a safe on the rear seat of the vehicle. At 11am, he was arrested by officers on suspicion of going equipped to commit robbery. 
to which he forcibly resisted arrest, as a result requiring the use of CS gas and three officers to restrain him, with one officer sustaining a cut to his mouth in due process. During his time in custody, Turden was observed to have a strange presentation, and officers, including a detective constable and six uniformed officers, made a visit to his parents' home address, searching his bedroom. Turden was subsequently reviewed in police custody by a mental health professional and deemed unfit for interview, further being immediately transferred once again to Ward East 3A of the Whitchurch Hospital and detained under Section 2 of the Mental Health Act. Handcuffed and accompanied by two police officers, a social worker and a member of nursing staff, Turden was admitted to the ward on the morning of the 3rd of July 2007, where upon arrival he was searched and a lock knife found on his person, which had been missed and which was handed over to staff there for safekeeping. It was noted that Turden appeared to be in a lot of discomfort when he arrived on the ward, especially with his eyes, and that his speech was bizarre in content with him speaking with an enforced accent. When the handcuffs were removed, he was assisted to the bathroom area to wash his face, as well as being provided with clean clothes, before a physical assessment was completed by the duty doctor, and Turden offered PRN20 medication, which he refused. Due to his behaviour and following his exposure to CS gas, Turden was subsequently placed on 15-minute observation, but by later that afternoon, documentation claims that Turden was much more settled on the ward and was pleasant on interaction, although on occasion had become paranoid and suspicious. During conversations with staff, he also denied that any incident had occurred with the police the previous day, claiming the reason he'd been brought to the hospital was because his car didn't have a valid MOT certificate. He also informed staff that he didn't want any information to be passed on to his family about his admission to hospital, and that he didn't want to have contact with anyone, including his parents. He was also asked here to provide a urine sample for drug screening, which he refused to do, and instead filled up the sample bottle with water, remaining adamant that it was urine when he was challenged by staff about this. Turden's parents submitted another letter to the Mental Health Tribunal on the 10th of July 2007, in which they questioned, I quote, the outrageous and disastrous decision to discharge their son on the 8th of May, despite the decision by a psychiatrist to increase his section from a 2 to a 3 due to his deteriorating mental health, and also following receipt of their concerns prior to the previous tribunal taking place. The letter also detailed the events which had followed Turden's previous discharge from hospital, which included a period of him living rough in his car, running up a debt of some £9,000 in the two-month period, buying numerous items, including a four-wheel drive vehicle, an altercation with a work colleague, and repeated confrontations with neighbours for him frequently blocking off the street with his car. Their letter also made reference to the incident in Usk which resulted in their son's arrest and his current admission, with Turden's parents stating that when they were visited by police officers on the evening of the 2nd of July, they were informed that as this son had a replica gun on his person, should he have, I quote, taken it a step further, it could have resulted in him being shot by an armed response team. The letter went on to request that when their son inevitably appealed against his detention, the tribunal, I quote, 
consider most carefully the consequences of releasing him before he's had any treatment as he's constantly refused any prescribed medication for over the last six to nine months. It concluded with his parents stating that they were worried that his next inevitable confrontation with the police may prove fatal, and should their son be released without proper treatment again, they will have no alternative but to take civil action against all parties that they consider to be negligent in this matter. He remained in the Whitchurch Hospital until the end of September 2007, where he was then discharged once again into community-based care and prescribed the antipsychotic medication amisulpride in a 400mg dosage, a combination which was to last for the next four years. However, prior to this, on the 3rd of August, Turden's mother stated that although her son's daily visits home since his last admission had been going well, she did believe that he was somewhat masking his symptoms because he didn't wish to be in hospital. She also relayed that during conversations with her son over these visits, he'd informed her that he was not ill, nor had he ever been, and that he didn't need to be on any medication. He'd even contacted police to see whether he could get his air pistol back from them. The concerns that a parent notices. Eh? Discharged then, Turden returned to work at HMRC in October 2007 and was somewhat monitored by health services over the next few years, at first monthly, but which then gradually scaled back to six monthly, and by which time his dosage of amisulpride had been reduced to 200 milligrams. On the 27th of October 2008, after he reported struggling in his role at work, Turden's consultant psychiatrist sent a letter to his employers providing a brief summary of his mental health issues, stating, he remains fragile and vulnerable to further relapse. However, he is never a threat to anybody and is always a pleasant young man who is trying hard to lead a normal life as possible. Matthew's emotional problems could be helped by changing his job if this is at all possible. He has difficulty in communicating with people for long periods and often becomes emotional and unable to concentrate. As a result, Turden was subsequently moved from the call centre team to the administration team within HMRC and his hours were cut, a role which he was to remain in until just before his arrest in October 2012. But there was to be no contact between Turden and the Lynx CMHT for the next 15 months after this, though Turden did have mental health reviews on at least three occasions in 2010 at the FEMC separated by four and six months respectively. By this time, his amisulpride had been reduced again to 150 milligrams, and in each of these reviews, he was recorded as being asymptomatic, well, and well-adjusted to taking his medication. On the 27th of April 2011, Turden was again reviewed by a consultant psychiatrist as an outpatient at the links, who documented that Matthew has been well for some time. He is studying and working 12 hours a week. He's applied for an increase in hours, but this request was declined. He is quite happy to continue with the medication unchanged for a while. Turden's annual mental health review was completed on the 2nd of June 2011, again by a GP at FEMC, where it was recorded that he was feeling well and was working 12 hours a week, as well as thinking about getting his own flat. 
His next mental health review was scheduled to take place on the 2nd of June 2012, though he was never to attend this. On the 18th of October 2011, he was reviewed for what was to be the final time by a consultant psychiatrist at the Lynx, who documented, Matthew is well and in the phase of recovery. He's working full-time again now and taking Amisulpride 150mg daily. Now, quite crucially, the review notes went on. I advised him to continue on the same dose for another year and gradually start to cut down by 50mg every two months until he stops. I've not given him another appointment, but I'm quite happy to see him again in the future. Now at this stage, he was still on 150mg of amisulpride. Turden later told the review team compiling this report that approximately 10 months prior to the horrific rampage he went on on the 19th of October 2012, rather than this advised descaling in his medication, he had simply stopped taking this prescribed medication completely. During this period also, it was revealed that he'd begun researching different mental illnesses online and had discovered a term known as gaslighting, which refers to a form of mental abuse when false information is presented with the intent of making the victim doubt his or her own memory, perception or sanity. Turden had become obsessed with this idea and this, combined with his lack of medication, the condition that had been kept at bay for so long began to come to the fore once again, ultimately resulting in the devastation of one family and the trauma to so many others. Though his trial for the charges he faced was scheduled to begin on the 5th of June 2013, at a plea hearing at Cardiff Crown Court on the 23rd of May, Matthew Turden entered guilty pleas to one count of manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility, contrary to Section 2 of the Homicide Act 1957, amended by Coroners and Justice Act 2009, seven counts of attempted murder, contrary to Section 1 of the Criminal Attempts Act 1981, two counts of causing grievous bodily harm with intent, contrary to Section 18 of Offences Against the Person Act 1861, Two counts of attempting to cause grievous bodily harm with intent, contrary to Section 1 of the Criminal Attempts Act 1981. Five counts of assault occasioning actual bodily harm, contrary to Section 47 of the Offences Against the Person Act 1861. One count of assault by beating, contrary to Section 39 of the Criminal Justice Act 1988. One count of dangerous driving, contrary to Section 2 of the Road Traffic Act 1988. Ian Murphy QC, prosecuting, said he accepted the pleas on the basis of psychiatric reports that Turden was suffering from paranoid schizophrenia at the time of the incidents, but added that he would like to consult the victims of the rampage to gauge what they thought of Turden's guilty pleas, saying, There are so many complexities to this case, it's important that those victims who want to be consulted are consulted. If the victims were unhappy with the said pleas, Mr Murphy furthered that he was still ready to press ahead with a murder trial beginning on the 5th of June, and so presiding Mr Justice Wynne Williams adjourned proceedings until then, pending the outcome of consultations with the surviving victims. These pleas were accepted by all, however, and so, 
on Wednesday the 5th of June 2013, the start of two days of sentencing Matthew Turden began. Dressed in a black top and trousers, unshaven and wearing glasses, flanked by nursing staff, Turden appeared via video link at Cardiff Crown Court from Ashworth High Security Psychiatric Hospital in McGull in Merseyside, where he admitted the charges I mentioned previously on the grounds of diminished responsibility. Mr Murphy then outlined the horrific events of that day the previous October, telling the court, Karina Menzies and all the others attacked by Turden were strangers. They were in places where they should have been safe. None of them have done or said anything to Turden to attract his attention, let alone this violence. It was a journey of mayhem. It covered a distance of eight miles and a duration of 30 minutes. It was a series of deliberate and horrific incidents perpetrated by Matthew Turden, who deliberately targeted five family groups and in each incident intended to kill at least one member of that family. He caused the death of one person and injuries to many, including really serious and life-changing injuries. Turden is accepting that all the ingredients of murder are established in relation to the death of Karina Menzies, but he averts responsibility because he was suffering from an abnormality of mental function, which arises from a recognised mental condition, namely paranoid schizophrenia. That condition affected his ability to recognise what was going on around him and to exercise self-control. Cardiff Crown Court heard how Turden had driven erratically and dangerously earlier in the day in his black Renault Clio, with CCTV played of Turden driving his Clio along a main road in Cardiff, mounting grass verges, speeding through red lights and driving the wrong way into oncoming traffic. Mr Murphy went on, but this driving pales into insignificance compared with what was to come. The court was then shown CCTV of Turden parking the Clio alongside his white Aveco van in the car park of the West End Social Club in Cowbridge Road West, then getting out of the car and climbing into the three-ton vehicle, which Mr Murphy described as higher than a tall man. Lisa Davis, who as we've said lived nearby and who was shown appearing quickly on the scene, was shown standing in front of the van in an attempt to prevent him driving off but moving aside when it became clear she wouldn't be successful. Mr Murphy continued, Once the defendant drives from the car park onto Cowbridge Road West, that was the start of the defendant's journey of madness and mayhem. Turden owned a three-ton van which was in good condition. The vehicle itself was not dangerous, but the way Turden drove it was dangerous in the extreme. The court was then shown CCTV footage showing each of the horrific attacks in sequence, as well as officers attempting to stop Turden before they ultimately fishtailed him off the road. But in the most serious incident, the court saw for themselves how Turden had deliberately targeted Karina Menzies as she walked on the forecourt of Ely Fire Station with two of her children, and how she had pushed her children out of the way before the van hit her. Now, each piece of footage must have been pure horror to see, and indeed, several of those involved in the incidents had to leave the courtroom before the disturbing footage was played to the court. To gain some scale of how horrific we're talking here, try this extract from the statement of eyewitness Kevin O'Callaghan, which was also read to the court, 
and who had told police. This van suddenly veered off and drove to the other side of the road straight at a woman and her two young children. All I remember is bodies flying through the air. The only way I can describe it is that it was like skittles. He then swung the van around in the forecourt and I could hear the engine revved up high. He then drove straight back at the female. I saw her moving slightly. He drove back over her and she got stuck under the vehicle and was dragged for 10 to 20 feet. The van came to a stop just before a brick wall, so he reversed it, which meant running over her body again with one of his wheels. Like Skittles. The stuff of pure nightmares, that, isn't it? Paul Kelleher QC, defending Turden, said he'd been diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic as far back as July 2003, but in October 2011, had been discharged from psychiatric services, not considered a danger to himself or anyone else, and as we've heard, simply told to gradually cut down his medication before stopping it entirely. Mr. Kelleher said that when Turden was not ill, he was a thoroughly pleasant, kind, thoughtful, even timid man, and that he believed himself to be sane at the time of his rampage, but convinced that everyone was trying to drive him out of his mind. Dr. John Crosby, a consultant forensic psychiatrist who was responsible for overseeing the care of Turden at Ashworth Hospital, told the court that he agreed that he was suffering from diminished responsibility at the time, saying that how weeks after the rampage and killing Karina, Turden still believed that he'd been manipulated to act as he did, convinced that these strangers had conspired to undermine his mental health over years of plotting. However, after Turden had accepted medication, his symptoms had eased and he began to show somewhat of an understanding of what he'd done. This was reflected in an extract from a letter from Turden's parents that was also read out to the court, in which they said their son was now profoundly conscious of what he'd done and that he would have to live with his terrible guilt for the rest of his life. Rather than do that in a term of imprisonment, Dr. Crosby told the hearing that instead, Turden should be made the subject of an order that would protect the public from serious harm and be kept instead in a secure hospital. The following day, Thursday, June the 6th, Turden said nothing and showed no reaction as when passing sentence, Mr. Justice Williams told him. The events giving rise to these pleas took place on Friday afternoon, 19th of October 2012 over the space of approximately 30 minutes between about 3.30 and 4pm. None of the victims knew you, and the reality is that you did not know any of your victims. Your trail of destruction was brought to an end only as a consequence of determined action on the part of the police. The judge went on to describe all of the incidents of that October afternoon, calling each of them horrific and deliberate and that Turden had used his van as a lethal weapon. He said of Turden's fatal hit and run, You ran over Miss Menzies quite deliberately while she and her two children were walking outside Ely Fire Station. There is compelling evidence that you ran over her not once, but twice. She died from multiple injuries caused by your deliberate actions. The judge then continued, On any view, you have committed a large number of grave crimes. In total, there were 18 people directly affected by your actions, but I have little doubt that they impacted profoundly on many more, 
you caused incalculable harm to many people. But I am satisfied that without your serious mental illness, you would not have behaved in the way you did. I accept that you probably believed that you did know the adults. He added that he had reflected anxiously and with care on the view of Dr. Crosby, saying, I am prepared to accept that he is correct in his assessment. There can be no doubt about the diagnosis of severe mental illness in this case. As long ago as 2003, you were diagnosed as suffering from paranoia, and the view was then expressed that you probably had a schizophrenic illness with depressive symptoms. In 2007, a similar diagnosis was made. As I understand it, throughout the period 2003 to 2011, you were treated with appropriate medication for such an illness. Reflecting upon reports of Turden being advised as an outpatient to phase out his medication over the course of the previous year, Mr Justice Williams added, In judging your culpability, I accept that it would not be appropriate to proceed on a basis that you fail to take medication made available to you. Rather, it seems at least likely that you cease to take appropriate medication simply because you were advised to do so. There can be no doubt that the absence of medication during the period leading to October 2012 had a significant effect upon your health, but I do not consider it appropriate to attach any blameworthiness to you for that state of affairs. That intent was formed while you were in the grip of the illness which I've described. There is nothing before me to suggest that you were capable of forming that intent in the absence of such an illness. He added, I will make an order that under the Mental Health Act, you should be detained at Ashworth Maximum Security Hospital without restriction of time. You'll be released from that institution only if a mental health tribunal considers it appropriate that you should be released. Given the nature and severity of your illness, and the harm which you caused when in the grip of that illness, you should expect that you will be detained in hospital for a very long period of time. The judge also banned Turden from driving for 25 years and said that his Avico van and Renault Clio would both be forfeit before adding in conclusion. I pay tribute to the stoicism and resilience of the family of Miss Menzies and all the other victims and their families. I also pay tribute to all those members of the public who sought to assist in their own way as events unfolded particularly those who afforded care to your victims until the emergency services were able to respond. Now, many of these just mentioned had listened to these sentencing remarks, and several reacted angrily to the verdict, with some even storming out of court, the emotion of the event still very raw. Is that all he's having? One man shouted as he left the court, whilst another said, they should have put a gun to his head. And after the hearing, Karina's sister Samantha said, Nothing will be good enough really, but at least he's away for a long time. I hope he never gets out. It's not really justice in my eyes, this. Matthew Turden remains in Ashworth Hospital to this day. Now, the report I mentioned that I detailed Turden's previous mental health history from was released in September 2014 and found the discharge arrangements in relation to his 2007 admissions to have been shoddily organised and non-compliant with the accepted pathway of care expected for someone with Turden's history of relapse and illness. 
Contact with services was only reinitiated following the incident in Usk, which resulted in Tverden being readmitted to Whitchurch Hospital under section, from which his third and final discharge in September 2007 was inadequate. Even though his medical notes had evidence there was a risk of relapse when he was not on regular medication. However, there was no contingency plan developed in case of such a relapse, nor was there a plan for follow-up and monitoring of the advised gradual reduction in medication. It was exactly the same for his final discharge in October 2011. There was no discharge summary or contingency plan completed, and the report concluded that Turden should have been placed on a care programme and allocated a care coordinator a plan which would have been shared between the community mental health team, the patient's general practice, and the patient himself and his carers, but which fell woefully short. Despite this, however, the report did find that the tragic incident in October 2012 could not have been predicted. Adam Keynes, the chief executive of Cardiff and Vale University Health Board, who were in charge of overseeing Turden's case, said, the review has acknowledged that it was difficult to see how this could be prevented. We accept that with hindsight, there were things that all agencies involved could have done better. I would like to reassure that we have accepted and are acting upon the recommendations. We have completed a review of those practices and services and agreed measures for improvements. We have taken steps to make sure mental health services are appropriate, safe and manageable. It just comes a bit too late for Karina and her family though that, doesn't it? When the report was published, her sister Samantha said, It is absolutely diabolical how his medication wasn't monitored. If it had been, then none of this would have happened, and my sister would still be alive. He hadn't been taking his medication, and many prescriptions had been missed. But who cared? Who was looking after him? He saw nine different GPs at his local practice but none of them could remember him. Anyone with such a severe mental illness should have their medication monitored on a regular basis. It should be essential. Turden was left to roam and do as he pleased. He was let down just like we've been let down, and it all ended in terrible tragedy for so many families. They're saying it was a system failure, but it's complete negligence. Complete and utter negligence and a total lack of communication and because of careless mistakes and lack of communication, the worst happened. Someone we loved very much got killed. Three little girls have lost their beautiful mother who they loved so much. I've lost a precious sister. And it all could have been prevented. As I said before, Karina's daughters went to live with Samantha following the mother's death although she and her partner Lee already had custody of his three children from a previous relationship, who were then aged 16, 13 and 11, there was never any doubt they would bring up Karina's girls themselves in the Ely home, saying at the time, It was the most natural thing in the world, I wouldn't see them anywhere else. We've all got a really strong bond with the girls, they've lived with me for a little while before, and I've got a really good relationship with them. I used to have them all on the weekend. I love them to bits, and as a family, we all support them and look after them, and will make sure they grow up as the lovely girls they are. I just hope I can be as good a mum to them as Karina was. I look at them and think of what they've lost, and it just makes me want to carry on even more. Now, 
Samantha went on and did an amazing job. In 2017, as the five-year anniversary of Karina's death approached, she told the local media in an honest and brave interview, It can change your whole life in terms of everyday stuff. In my case, I have other kids to look after. I had to change my job. I had to change everything. I have more hospital appointments to go to because Sophie, the eldest, has a disability and she's back and forth to the hospital. It's been stressful, although it's been rewarding as well, watching the kids grow up and achieve. But it is sad because I should not be doing this and would not be if my sister was here. Nothing could beat having her back. I see Karina in the kids every day. The way they laugh, the eldest has my sister's laugh, the way they look and the things they do. It's quite comforting to know that she does live on in them and everything they do. I take comfort in the fact that she is still around protecting them. Milestones are difficult. Birthdays, anniversaries, my sister's birthday. Christmas is especially hard. It's nice to see their faces, but for me, there's a subtle undertone of real sadness because I should not be watching them opening their presents. Karina should be doing that. The last thing she thought of was her kids. That's how mum should be. I couldn't agree more. And Samantha, should this tale ever filter back to you, you are an absolute credit to your family and your sister. You really are. This tale, when I came to research and write it, the predominant words that keep coming back to me are sympathy and tragic. It's a terrible tale of actions that caused such devastation to so many people. And yet one that a familiar word I often use in enthusiast episodes is somewhat missing from. Anger. Well, it's not missing, but it's not directed at who it usually would be in such an episode. Tragic and sympathy, I hope, need no explanation whatsoever. There are three girls who at such an impressionable age each had to face the loss of their mother and of their father there's no mention and who've had to grow up without her. So the sympathy and tragic, I feel, I think speak for themselves there. Along with sympathy, of course, for all of the others affected by Turden's rampage. But let's not forget those affected by it who may go unmentioned or unconsidered. Turden's own family, who've effectively lost their son because of it, and who must also live with the guilt brought on by the consequences of what he did that day. Matthew Turden was a person unquestionably caught in the grip of a terrifying illness that can strike up on anybody. It could you, it could me. And whilst his actions that October afternoon were horrendous, and I am in no way trying to justify or excuse them, I must make that abundantly clear, but how can you really know the terror and mindset such a person in such a state must be in to be driven to do that as he was truly in that day? Unless you're in the grip of it yourself, I ask you. If I feel any anger, it's towards the authorities that failed him in his aftercare and ultimately failed Karina, her children and the others affected by his actions. If someone shows such disturbed behaviour, is sectioned four times over the years and is arrested with an air pistol, risking himself being shot by an armed response, then you would get their case notes in order and seriously follow up where it needed to be followed up, which as was found, fell woefully short in this case. Yes, okay, you cannot predict an individual's every action, of course you can't. But if someone over a period of several years needs antipsychotic medication, and has a history of resisting it and relapse, 
of skipping appointments or of masking symptoms to people, then surely, as a medical professional, you do not merely advise them to simply cut it down themselves over time, however much improved they seem. You scale the dose down as far as possible over time first and see that they finish the course of it, don't you? Or you at least ensure that such an individual with such a disturbed history gets seen on a regular, even a semi-regular basis, even through a home visit. Instead, he somewhat fell through a crack in the system here, so I feel they must each share some guilt for this as much as any others do. Despite the findings of the report, the question remains, could it have been different if this had been done? Or is it something that may have crept up on Matthew Turden once again at another date in the future, resulting in a similar tragedy? As I said before, he's where he needs to be to this day. Think not really of him, but I ask you to take from this tale the thoughts of so many who were affected by his actions. Some with physical scars they'll carry for life, others who've lost so much, so precious, but all who will never, ever forget them. I know where my thoughts lie. I would welcome, as always, hearing your thoughts and feedback on the tale Journey of Mayhem, which you can, of course, do so in the episode thread that's now up and running in the show's Facebook discussion group or through any of the show's social media links. Wherever you want to get in touch, if you do, I'm always happy to hear from you folks wherever you know that. Now, I know this second part has been a tad delayed in coming. As I said at the start, you blame CrimeCon is all I can say. But I do hope it's a tale, and it's a sad tale, isn't it? I know it really is, but I do hope it's a tale you found informative nonetheless. And we shall be back on Truer Crime Thursday sooner than petrol prices go up. I shall even be banging that bloody Patreon episode out before then also. All that remains for me to say then is that I thank you all so kindly for joining me and the Mog today and that I've been, I still am and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all good and safe times and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, stay safe and goodbye for now.